Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I am here today with Robert C. Schwaller, Associate Professor of History at the University of Kansas, to talk about his newest book, African Maroons in 16th Century Panama, out right now, this very second, this year, 2021, with the University of Oklahoma Press. Hi, Rob, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Yeah, it is great to talk to you. How's Lawrence? Lawrence is, well, we just hit fall, so we've had some beautiful days in the in the 70s, and it's been just wonderful to be outside and not 100 degrees and muggy. Ah, <laughs> oh, the plains. It's a state of mind. Um, <laughs> a truly appalling weather. Uh, yeah, so, God, it's, it's good to see you, old friend. In the interest of full disclosure, Rob and I are indeed old friends. Uh, we met about 20 years ago. Are you aware of that? It was 18. I was I was doing the math. Yeah, it was 18 <laughs> years ago, pretty much right about now. Wow. Yeah, because we, uh, Robert just started grad school at Penn State where I was uh, finishing up. And we had, we are, we are not just graduate colleagues. We've done, we collaborated on a project together, a new translation and critical edition of Girolamo Benzoni's History of the New World. A uh, little shout out for our good work there. Um, so I really loved this book. I think it's an important publication. Um, apart from our longstanding per- personal connection, I would have wanted to read this book. Um, so our friendship has no bearing on the timber of the interview. But, you know, just in case you're curious and you're like, hey, I recognize those two names. Uh, yeah, actually, we, we know each other in real life, too. So listeners, Rob is the author of now, I can't even say geez anymore. What the stupid touch has done to me. Caneros de Gente in uh, early colonial Mexico, defining racial difference. Also, though, you press uh, 2016, which grew out of your dissertation. Yeah, Rob. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand perfectly how you came to this book. It's like right in your wheelhouse as a scholar whose work focuses on the development of race in Latin America and the experiences of Africans and their descendants and their interaction with uh, indigenous groups. Makes perfect sense. But you tell us right at, right at the beginning of the book uh, how you uh, how you came upon these sources, and I think our listeners would like to hear that. Sure. So um, I was I was I was basically I had money to to go and do my research to sort of move from Project One, which was on these racial categories in colonial Mexico, to Project Two, which I had begun. You know, one of the big things that I found in the, the dissertation research and in the first book was that Africans. Um, in colonial Latin America, particularly Mexico, but other places as well, uh, tended to uh, be interact with and even um, in, in certain places and spaces form families with indigenous people. And one of, the, one of the things that I point out in the dissertation is that in Mexico, at least during the 16th century, uh, about half of the individuals who were of mixed African ancestry who would have been labeled with the racial category mulatto, which is the same as the one the word we use in English, mulatto, 
um, were probably Afro-Indigenous. And so what I wanted to do was to see, kind of look at that story in a more expansive geography, um, and in particular, try and get a sense for how the relationship between Africans and Indigenous people changed depending on where you were. Um, and so I was interested in sort of moving from Mexico, where I'd seen these encounters both in cities like Mexico City, which is, again, one of the biggest cities of Spanish America, or rural areas. This is a phenomenon that was particularly common in what we would call the near north of Mexico. So like the areas to the north of Mexico City where uh, they were very known for silver and cattle ranching, like Querétaro and Guanajuato. Um, I saw this, a, a slightly different dynamic there happening in rural areas. But I wanted to look and see what things were like in that front in places like Hispaniola, which is, of course, like the very beginning of Spanish colonialism, which admittedly doesn't have too many Tainos left during the 16th century, but there still are some, um, or someplace like Panama or Cartagena, um, and, and kind of see how these different colonial spaces um, affected these relationships that I was seeing between Africans and indigenous people. And so I was in the archive in Seville, um, the, the archive of the Indies, and I was pulling up stuff from Panama, and I ran across this huge bundle of stuff um, in the archive. Basically, these, the way that they archive stuff is, 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 is basically these bundles of documents that get tied up in a nice little envelope that's about a little bit bigger than you know, an eight and a half, 11 piece of paper, and usually about five to eight inches thick. So you're kind of flipping through these bundles of documents. Um, although this one I wasn't flipping through because it had been microfilmed and unfortunately they wouldn't let me look at the original. So I was, I was scrolling through the microfilm of this bundle of documents and I started finding all of this stuff about um, Africans who had run away in Panama and were living in communities out in the middle of nowhere on the isthmus outside of Spanish control. And, and what had drawn my eye was in, in, in one of the places was that, in fact, there was an indigenous community that, that, was, that was interacting with these Africans. And, and what I'd actually found was something that I might come up later in the interview was this list of um, Maroons followed by a list of indigenous people. The Maroons all have names. <laughs> the indigenous people, it just says like, un indio, una india, un indio. So it's just like an Indian, an Indian, an Indian that were being relocated because there had been this war and a peace had been agreed to. And so these, these Africans had actually now become free and were being relocated to a new city and they were bringing along this indigenous community. Um, and, and I realized as I was reading that, that this was a story that I hadn't really run across before. Um, and, and as I sort of went in to look at this story, I, I, I realized part of it is that it just hasn't been treated very much in English. There's, there's been a few people that looked at it um, I found some surprising things in terms of it's known, but it's always been on the periphery. So, for example, way back in like the mid 20th century, W.E.B. Du Bois actually mentions it briefly in like the introduction to one of his works about um, he's sort of putting it in, in, in conversation with the Haitian Revolution as these moments of sort of black uh, resistance to slavery and, 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 and even victory. Right. Because because he knew that this moment in Panama, these runaway slaves actually secured their freedom. Um, and, uh, but, but really, there hasn't been much scholarly treatment on it. Um, there's, there's one article that was published at this point about 
13 years ago uh, that's mostly based on published sources. That the, it's not really even based on the things that I was looking at in the archive. Um, and there's one book in Spanish that really looks at this case. But other than that, it, it just sort of appears in the periphery of scholars who have looked at African resistance. And, you know, on that same research trip, I started finding other examples of enslaved peoples running away, um, in particular in uh, Hispaniola uh, during the 16th century. And then from my, Afri- my Mexican research, I, I knew that there was also these, these episodes in, in Mexico. So that's where I got the idea for trying to develop a, a study that looked at marinage, right, the flight, slave flight, um, as, as the focus. And, and it turns out that the, the sort of Afro-Indigenous side was a bit more tangential in this project. I still want to get back to that project, but um, I just became very enamored with um, these examples of of marinage because they're not as well treated, and and scholars that have looked at it have tended to, to look at it for the much later period. So um, mostly stuff in the the 1700s, a lot of it in like places like the French Caribbean, um, uh, Jamaica, um, and then also there's a lot of scholars recently that are beginning looking at it in in the American South um, and 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 how it manifests there, but. But again, for the 16th century, there's very few people that have, have looked at any of this stuff. You know, and I see this, like, part of the work you're doing here is just reminding, reminding moderns that these communities even existed. I mean, it is so far removed from the dominant, dominant narrative of the history of slavery and the history of Africans in the Western Hemisphere. And I just, why is this the case? Like, why is this largely the history of a forgotten people? So I think part of it uh, has to do with the fact that um, when we look at when we think about slavery, particularly in the U.S. context, we really are thinking about slavery. At least in U.S., we often think not about slavery as it was even in the 1700s, but really as it was in that antebellum period. Um, so after independence, but before the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, there's a lot of marinage going on. There's there's actually a, a, a huge mar- maroon community um, in a place called the Great Dismal Swamp, um, which tells <laughs> you how far they had to go to to sort of right. find places that were. Uh, where they could set that up. Um, but I think even if we sort of expand out from the ways that we think about uh, slavery and slave systems, we still don't really go much back past the mid 18th century. So even if we're thinking about the Caribbean and like Haiti, you know, when it was still saint mm-hmm. Domingue, we're still mostly thinking about the 1700s. Um, and, and, and we don't, as a, as a general population, have much knowledge of what the very early Atlantic slave system looked like. Um, and so what do people really forget? And what I talk about a lot when I'm teaching classes is that, you know, before 1640, the vast majority of enslaved peoples that are transported by the slave trade end up in Spanish America, but they don't end up in places that you would think about. They don't end up in Cuba, which is a place that we might have this image as being a place that has an Afro legacy that's tied to the slave trade. The, the Cuban the, the sort of racial reality of Cuba is much more um, shaped by a, a, a late 18th and even post-Haiti uh, slave trade to the island. Um, but they end up in places like Mexico, and they end up in places like Panama, and they end up in places like, like Peru, um, Colombia. Uh, and that history just really isn't part of our Anglo worldview because it's because it's in the in the in the Spanish speaking world, and 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 it's also uh, that that history is also sort of influenced by um, 
kind of longer arcs of the slave trade. So we, we still might think that places around, along the Caribbean have a strong Afro legacy, and, and they do, because there's, there's inter-American inter slave trade all the way, again, to the end of uh, the, the slave trade. Um, and so there are still individuals being brought as slaves to places like Cartagena or Panama. Um, but it sort of peters off to places like Mexico or, or Peru. And so we don't generally think of that, even though there's parts of modern day Mexico. So for example, along the Pacific coastline in the state of Guerrero, um, there's actually a number of incredibly longstanding Afro-Mexican communities that, um, that phenotypically look a lot more like what you see in some place like um, the Dominican Republic or Cuba, um, and maybe now imagine Mexico or Mexicans would look like. Um, so much so that, I mean, in Mexico, it's it, in the past, uh, what was it? It might be as long as five to 10 years, but they just started putting an Afro category back on the census because there has been advocacy by these, these essentially invisible groups that, that there is an African legacy in Mexico. Um, and, and so to, to sort of bring it back to the story that I'm telling, the, the, the type of slavery that we see doesn't right, really map onto the types of slavery that, that, again, get kind of hit on in the American educational system or when we sort of bring up slavery, because it's not often plantation slavery. Um, it's, you know, in, in Panama, where this story is taking place, it's actually everything. <laughs> they don't have plantations. Um, but enslaved peoples are, are, are doing the vast majority of everything. They're the ones that are unloading the boats. Um, and of course, Panama is important because that's how you get stuff from Europe to South America. You, you have to take it across the isthmus even before there's a canal. And so all of that work is being done by enslaved peoples. They're unloading the boats on the Atlantic side. They're loading up mules and guiding mules across an overland trail. Uh, they're cutting down lumber for cities and construction and, and fuel. They're, they're doing the farming uh, for any of the food that's produced locally. Uh, they're doing all of the construction work. Uh, and of course, they're doing all of the domestic service in the house. So it's, it's, a, an, it's a slave system that doesn't, in which enslaved people are doing everything, but they're also not doing it in ways that are familiar to us, right? This isn't, this isn't the, you know, a cotton plantation or, um, you know, an indigo plantation or tobacco uh, plantation. Um, it, it doesn't, they're not concentrated in those ways and, and, and sort of put into these monoculture type agricultural systems, but they are everywhere um, in the system. And even someplace like Mexico City, um, you know, according to one colonial official, Mexico City is supposed to have, is reported as having 20,000 Africans by as early as the 1550s, um, which would basically put the African population of Mexico City at, at twice the size of the Spanish uh, population. It's probably an exaggeration, but I think it's safe to say that in a lot of these early areas, Spaniards are bringing at least as many Africans as they are themselves uh, to, to the colonial uh, encounter as part of colonization. So one of the stories that, that I think is closely linked to this book is actually what resistance looks like when your the sort of agents of 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 colonialism are sort of fifty percent European Spanish and fifty percent African and enslaved, um, and and how that sort of changes the dynamics of resistance for those enslaved people, 
um, and how it even changes the dynamics of, of what European empires are looking to do right. with spaces that they're going into. And I mean, what a, what a European empire looks like, what does colonialism look like when you're bringing as, as many, if not more Africans, right? Like that's a, a different colonial picture that really complicates the picture of colonialism and the conquest and, and, you know, and, and slavery in these ways that I think, I mean, um, you know, of course are really difficult to tell. Those are stories that are going to be hard to tell. These are things that are hard under, hard to understand and maybe even hard to see. And it, it's a very complicated tale. And I think that, you know, the idea that it just doesn't, it does not fit the narrative we understand, but I think also maybe it doesn't fit the narrative we need, right? Like to tell us the story that we want to tell about the conquest and how it went, about colonialism, about enslaved peoples. Yeah, no, I would agree that that I think that, um, you know, I almost all of my classes touch on the conquest. And I think that certainly in the American mind, there's a, there's a strong legacy of the black legend um, and somehow the Spanish being different as, as, as colonizers and somehow being worse. Um, and, and I don't want your readers to get the sense that I'm trying to say that the Spanish aren't all of those things. I'm simply trying to say that, um, that actually it, they're more similar to the English than most students want to give credit for. So, so a lot of my classes, I try and point out that, you know, the English are doing a lot of the same things. You look at the, the Anglo-Powhatan Wars in Virginia, and they're basically doing the same sort of thing that the Spanish are um, in Hispaniola in terms of trying to sort of spark warfare to enslave indigenous people, to use them as labor. Um, and even if you look up at, at, at New England, uh, which often is, you know, the, the place that, that we look to for like the origins of our republic and uh, the sort of colonial charter and Thanksgiving and um, all of these things. And, and yet you still have, uh, you know, King Philip's War and a number of other wars where the same thing's happening where, uh, you know, these supposedly very pious Christian settlers are, are purposefully antagonizing indigenous peoples for the purposes of either taking their land or forcing them into servitude. Um, and, and when you add Africans to the mix, it, 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 it just, it further complicates it. I, you know, there's a, a scholar, uh, that, that's in this field, David Wheat, and he's the one that, that ha has forwarded this argument that, um, that we need to start thinking about Africans uh, as, as agents of empire, um, particularly in these areas where they become the majority population early, early on. Um, and uh, part of that is that uh, the dynamics of enslavement are such that um, they do tend to become hispanized. Um, and, and so uh, they also, there's also more pathways to freedom. So for example, in Panama, um, even though Africans are the majority labor force and, and certainly outnumber the Spanish population, by the 1570s and certainly by 1600, um, the, the majority of, of that population is actually also free. So you have a very large enslaved population, but you also have a very large free, free Africans of, uh, who have been freed or have been born free, so free people of color. Um, and, and so then... What does it tell us about Spanish Empire when you're in these places like Cartagena or Panama or Santo Domingo, um, where the vast majority of the Hispanic population is is actually of African descent? Um, are free people of African descent who are who are then um, the, the ultimately the the people that are are the empire? Right. That's a very interesting question, and you know. 
I mean, the narrative of like the story of the conquest is, of course, really messy, you know, and there's an argument to be made that there are places that were never conquered, that the conquest remains was incomplete. It was certainly long and spotty and contested. And this just adds this whole nother layer to that, that's of telling that narrative, the story of the conquest itself. Yeah, and I would say that that one of the one of the interventions that I that I'm interested with this project, and I think this book does a particularly good job narrating, is the fact that it is the incompleteness of the Spanish conquest that in areas that see such high importation of enslaved Africans ends up producing these this the these maroon communities and 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 so the way that it happens is that particularly in the Caribbean and then Panama is a, a sort of an extension of the Caribbean even though it's on the mainland the Spanish do exploit the indigenous population so completely um, and and the population is 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 lower than on on the mainland right so someplace like Hispaniola probably has a quarter of a million to maybe half a million Taino on it when the Spanish arrive, whereas Mexico City at that point is already, is, is probably just under, the, the, the basin of Mexico is just under a million people. Um, and, and greater Mexico is certainly like three to six million people, um, whereas like Hispaniola or Panama are, are in the sort of hundreds of thousands. Um, and so the Spanish practice of enslaving directly or exploiting, like relocating and then exploiting indigenous communities causes such um, distress to their life ways, their ability to sustain themselves that, that they collapse um, um, through disease, uh, through overwork. Um, but what that ends up happening is that right as, right as the Spanish are trying to sort of make a place like Hispaniola a colony, it's, it is becoming less populous uh, because the, the bulk of the population, which was indigenous, is, is, is dying or has died. Um, and so as they bring in Africans, the island is emptier, say, in the 1520s than it was certainly in the 1490s. Obviously, the way in which slavery treats the enslaved person is going to lead to resistance. Um, and in a place that's becoming increasingly empty, one of the most obvious ways to resist is to run away. Um, and so as a result, the fact that the Spanish not only kill so many indigenous peoples, but then the ones who survive, they engage in this practice of relocating them, relocating them to areas that, th that the Spanish want to exploit, whether it's because they want to use indigenous peoples to grow crops or whether they want to use indigenous peoples to mine for gold, uh, which, which by the way is placer mining. I think a lot of people think mining for gold in, in, in sort of like deep cave stuff. It's more like the, you know, uh, California gold rush placer mining in rivers. Um, and, and as a result, then, um, places that had formerly been cultivated stop being cultivated. Um, and, and so that can provide, it can provide two things. One, it can provide a place where Africans fleeing enslavement already have fields that might be planted or have been planted not that long ago. Or if it's been long enough, if it's been a decade or two decades, um, what we know uh, from the environmental history is that uh, Indigenous peoples were actually very active in managing the land, even if it wasn't all under cultivation. They used periodic fires to help them with um, hunting, or, or or simply keeping um, the sort of the more the the 
the thicker, more forested uh, foliage from coming so that they could put it under cultivation. So once that indigenous cultivation and management ends, you actually see the landscape become uh, more uh, more woody, more harder to harder to move through. Um, and actually, this this is something that was pointed out by a historian all the way back in the in the 1960s. Carl Sauer pointed out that there's this interesting transition in how the Spaniards even talk about these landscapes, particularly in the Caribbean and the Circum Caribbean. Um, and the words that they used to describe them when they're first there in like the, the, the 1490s or in Panama and like the fort in the 1510s versus the way that they describe them in say the 1530s ha- have changed. And, and basically they're using words to describe a place that has gotten reforested or, or at least, you know, it's not quite full forest. It's sort of shrubland. Uh, and of course that provides uh, places of refuge for people that are fleeing um, slavery. And, and it makes it harder than for, uh, agents of slave owners or simply agents of the Spanish to go out and find individuals that have fled slavery. Um, but but the point is that that's, a, that's part of the Spanish conquest, that the Spanish precipitated changes in the human geography, which then precipitated changes in the physical geography that then makes it more susceptible for exploitation by enslaved peoples fleeing slavery. Ah, wow. Um, sorry about that, Spaniards. Oh, that didn't go how you wanted. Oh, that's this is this is fascinating. Um, so, all right, let's. Um, I want to talk for a minute about translation in general. All right, because um, I mean, people who don't ever do it, I think they believe you just like read a word in Spanish or Nahuatl or whatever. And then you write down that corresponding word in English and you do that over and over until the whole thing's been translated. But, you know, you and I both know that is not how it goes. So can you talk just a little bit about how translation works more broadly? Sure. So I think, yeah. So 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 your listeners may or may not have gathered that that this volume is a collection of, of over 60 translated documents. And then I've I have a sort of introductory chapter where I sort of explain the context. I have an epilogue that sort of carries the story farther, but most of the story itself is told through these documents that then have introductions and annotations. Um, and so I would say that I brought to this translation the experience that I've gained um, translating stuff for classes, for use in classes. And of course, the project that you and I already collaborated on, which was this Italian translation where you did more of the translation um, and I was more of like the proofreader. Um, but the, uh, what I wanted to do is, is sort of balance readability, um, with capturing some sense of the semantics and the rhetoric. So the, the biggest trick with a lot of the documents that I had uh, that comprise this, this volume is that they're like official reports. Um, and so there's, there's like a, there's a bureaucratic edge to them because they are colonial officials that are reporting back to the King and his ministers in Spain, what's going on. And, and so I wanted to capture the sense of that. So readers got a sense for what a, what that, what that sounds like. But the problem is that the, just the way people wrote in the 16th century, um, is not the way that anyone would write today. 
Uh, it's true in English too. If you if you go back and try and read yeah. something in English, it's not. This isn't so much that it's Spanish is different. It's just writing it, that there was less of a connection between the written word and and the sort of spoken word as as we expect today. Um, right. What did you so, say? You said something about they use prepositions as punctuation marks, which yes, is just they, so true. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So basically, on a lot of a lot of you know, you're reading one of these reports, and you can't. Where's the sentence? Um, oh, because right. it's a there clause, are. and then a clause, and then a clause, and then and then you might get an and or a but or an or, which is basically the end of the sentence, and it's just going on to the next thing using that as mm-hmm. as the punctuation. So I would say the hardest part of the translation um, was was really trying to find natural breakpoints that separated these ideas, which in the original really do string together in a way that, you know, if you sit and read it and you, you, you'll get it, but, but it doesn't, it, for, for modern readers of any language, even a modern reader of Spanish would still have this difficulty is, is, is trying to match it. And of course, because of the way that Spanish works syntactically, you can have subjects and verbs and objects in kind of different places. So you can imagine a sentence that's got lots of different clauses where the subject and the objects might be separated by clauses. <laughs> um, and, and so having to sort of work back and, and figure out, well, okay, in English, I really have to put the, the subject and the verb closer together. And maybe I can throw in a clause before we get to the object or, you know, so, mm. so I, it did require a bit more reworking of what a, the sentence and the paragraphs were. Um, and, and I'm, I, you know, that, even the paragraphs, I should say, some of these documents right. don't have paragraphs, right? Right. So They're just so not only about where the sentence is, <laughs> what clauses should go in what sentence, but what what sentences define what paragraph? Um, sure. Oh God, so yeah. That, that, that took a lot of work to do. Um, I would say that the worst, the worst, the hardest document was was actually not the correspondence that was actually produced by sort of officials. But I have a, the longest section in here is actually a translation of a chronicle, which was written. It's, it's called the, the, it's basically called the history of Venezuela. It's like the Recopilación Historia de Venezuela. And it's not really, it's, it's basically about the conquest of Northern South America. So Venezuela is sort of stretching all the way to Panama in terms of how it's being used. And the interesting tidbit about that volume for some of your listeners might be that it's actually one of the places where we get um, a history of the person who's killed by Lope de Aguirre, which your readers might have seen the the famous Aguirre Wrath of God, Werner Herzog film, right? So part of that film actually is in this account. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the guy, I'm interested in the guy that Lope de Aguirre kills um, because <laughs> yeah. before he goes on the ill-fated trip down the Marañón where Lope de Aguirre kills him, he's called to uh, go out against these Maroons in Panama. And, and so you have this sort of chronicle that's, that's very flowery, that is literature, not sort of official correspondence, and, is, is, and has all of those airs. Um, and so it, it was much harder to translate precisely because it's so much more flowery uh it uses lots of um sort of parallel phrases so you have to figure out how how to how to sort of translate uh you know like if you know like running and jumping and he's sort of always kind of pairing ideas Mm -hmm. together 
Um, and, and, and there especially two sentences could get super long. And what matters is what's at the very beginning and what's at the very end. So how do you, how do you rearrange it? So those are, are coherent and then, and, but you still get some of the stuff that he's going through in the middle. Um, and, right. I would, and some of the flavor, some of the beauty of the prose, but not right. so much that it's annoying. Well, so this is, this is what's different about, you know, the, this, this, Chronicle and Benzoni are sort of of a similar ilk. They're being written for this European audience that mm-hmm. wants information of the Americas. The difference between Benzoni um, and this guy, who's, whose name is Pedro de Aguado, is Aguado is actually a good writer. So <laughs> the problem funny. wasn't so much like what he's trying to say. It really was how do I translate this into an English that that modern readers could make sense of, right? Um, uh, given that that he is using you know very flowery but but fully correct and 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 fully proper Castilian <laughs> of the 16th century words that existed for instance words, exactly yeah. use real words <laughs> that's that's nice but speaking of words I'm also thinking of words we still use like ne- negro negro right or mulatto that that just don't mean the same thing anymore like or maybe kind of do but just don't have the same implications like negro is a very good word right yeah. for that. So, so yeah, so there's, there's a couple categories of words that I really struggled over. Um, the, the racial ones, what I've done and what, I've, what, what I do here and what I do in all of my academic writing is that I always mark them in italics to say that I'm using them as the Spanish word. And yeah. sometimes that means that I have to go to my copy editor and be like, no, I know, I know that I want them all in italics, not just the first one. And usually they understand when, and I've always, I'm always always put a note in there saying, I'm doing this because the the racial terms themselves mean something different. I mean, you can if 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 I were to translate negro as as black, people would understand it, but I I want to capture the sense that the way that we might deploy black or have it be deployed. In, in modern English isn't quite the sense of what is going on, even though it is an heir to, to the earlier term. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same is certainly true for mulatto. Again, you know, in, in what I was doing in Mexico, because it's, it, it can mark people of such a varied ancestry, I wanted to make it not the mulatto that we might use in English, which does tend to have this connotation of, of, of people of mixed African and European ancestry. I wanted to sort of keep it that sort of broad and amorphous Spanish use of it rather than the, the, the sort of narrower Anglo meaning behind it. Um, so I've, I've always tried to keep racial terms in italics and, and that, and, and when, especially if I'm translating documents, I would use Indio rather than native American or, or Indian. Mm-hmm. But for this project, the other set of terms that, that I, I struggled over was actually terms having to do with environment um, because mm-hmm. the Spanish use, um, well, the, the term that they use most and where I had to, I went back and forth several times on what I was going to do was this word monte, which, which sounds like the root of montaña and it, and it actually mm-hmm. is. So monte is, can mean a million different things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, okay. it's actually very interesting, uh, semantically what it, how it can be deployed in Spanish. So it can mean like a hill or a rise. But in the 16th century, especially, and in these, these what we would call sort of what uh, tropical regions or even, or even moving into the subtropics, um, it's used to describe uh, kind of closed uh, foliage. 
So, so Monte like hopes like well, like Bush, right? So the closest okay. English word is Bush, the Bush. Um, oh, and, yeah. And 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 so for a time, I wanted to leave it yeah. all as Monte, and and I and I sort of sat with it, and 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 part of me was like, well, I could do that. Um, and, and I do have a section at the beginning that has sort of untranslated words that come up. Uh, but I ended up, I ended up deciding to, I was, I talked to some of some other friends, scholars and friends of mine who, 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 who sort of do environmental history of Latin America. And, and, you know, I think I might leave it as Monte in, in a more like truly scholarly monograph, but at least in this one, it made a bit more sense to just translate it as Bush. Or if it was very clear that it wasn't about so much the foliage and vegetation, and it was about sort of altitude and mm -hmm. and topography, then I could translate it as mountain or hill or rise or whatever. Um, but that was the one that for me was I struggled with the most because you can't translate it as one word. It, it has to. It really is context is what's telling mm -hmm. you whether it's about closed space, closed vegetative space, or topography. Um, and so I ended up just translating it as what appeared appropriate to the passage. So, I mean, I, I wanted to bring this up because I do think our listeners really enjoy kind of getting to see how the sausage is made a little bit, um, and kind of what it's like to be an historian. There's no better roses, I tell you. But <laughs> as well, um, I want to demonstrate that like how much is going into the work of, of uh, the work you're doing here and like picking these documents to tell a story to, to like get us through this period, like to, 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 to give us these, uh, kind of the, the evidence for the story you're telling in this really beautiful way. And it's, it's really masterful. I'm really impressed with this. Um, and so like, I'm, I'm interested in how you chose these documents. So you, I mean, they're, it's not because they're the easiest ones, right? So how did you pick these documents and how did you decide what to enclose and what to exclude and to tell your story? Yeah, no, that's that's a really good question. So, uh, part of it has to do with um, getting it published. <laughs> so initially, my very first idea was to to publish it in the same series that we'd done the Benzoni book in, which mm -hmm. is through Penn State Press, and it's called Latin American Originals. And it's a great series. Great I, I series. use the books in class, um, yeah. and, and they're designed to be under 40,000 words, which in print ends up being about 120-ish pages. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how they keep the price low for classroom adoption and whatnot. Um, and so when I initially did a pass through the documents to try and figure out what I wanted, I was working with that. I was like, I'm going to need about 5,000 to 6,000 words for an introduction. And then I'm going to need this. So if I, if I cut that down, how much, how much does that get me in terms of documents? And, I, and so I made a cut. The first, the first cut was trying to pick the most significant documents uh, that I could that when translated were about 40,000 words. So that the Aguado piece that I mentioned was one of them and it was always gonna be the longest um, because, because it, it, it tells a very, I mean, as I said, it's sort of literature-ish story and it's about, it's the most in-depth one that we have for like the early period of Maroon activity in the 1550s. So I knew that that was gonna be a big chunk and so then it was about, about trying to figure out what are some of the other high points of the story that you can, you know, draw the line from the high point to the high point. So I knew, for example, that I wanted to have some of the documents that come out of the, the final peace agreement 
between these Maroons and the Spanish, which, which gives these communities their freedom. Um, I wanted some of the documents that I had originally seen uh, that have these lists of Maroons because I wanted people to see like these people have names. I have their names. Um, and so I was, I was basically trying to pick these high points. What ended up happening was that I, I got to 40,000 words and I knew that I could do, I could do something in 40,000 words. But I wasn't sure that I would be able to do that much. For example, I didn't have much of a very early period. So I didn't, you know, mm -hmm. those aren't very long documents, but I didn't have much before 1550, even though there are some interesting examples. It was harder for me to include some of the documents that sort of tie things through or add context. So, for example, there's a document in, the, in here, which is um, basically a, a, the minutes and the result of some uh, a town council meeting. It's not town council. It's actually the, the Audiencia, which is the high court, which is also administrative, having an open, basically a town hall in Panama about what to do about uh, slave resistance. And so they come up with a whole bunch of slave codes. And I wanted to include that, but in 40,000 words, I couldn't include that. Mm -hmm. um, so I was thinking and... Uh, and I had noticed that that Oklahoma had published a couple other sort of annotated sources, sources in translation with with scholarly annotations. And so I went to the editor of my first book and I said, look, I've got this project. This is what it is. You know, I've already done most of it, um, but it would be nice if I, it, you know, if you guys could publish a longer version, if you could go up to 90,000, you know, uh, words. I think it would be great. I think it would, you know, it would sell. It'd be great for course use. And uh, and my editor said, sure. Why don't Why don't you, um, you know, I, I sent her some examples of what I'd done, and um, and and she said, sure, send me the project. So at that point, I was able to go back in and and then really sort of say, okay, um, what more can I add to the story? So I was able to add a, a lot more stuff at the beginning. I was able to add sort of little documents that in and of themselves wouldn't make much sense unless you had a, a sort of a, a finer grained story mm. being told. So for example, there's this amazing document that's in here, which is one of the few voices of enslaved people that, that appear, which is um, a man who had been kidnapped. So he's African. He was, he was working along the road. Uh, he's probably a muleteer, although it's not exactly specific. Um, and he gets kidnapped by Maroons and they take him on this journey uh, to their, to like probably a forward camp of theirs, a hunting camp or, or simply a, a camp that's far enough in the bush uh, to, to be away from the road, but not clearly not their main sort of residence or community. And he sees all sorts of stuff going on. And one of the things that he sees at this point is um, these English pirates um, who were, uh, on the isthmus who had gone to the isthmus who who they they actually this is a few years after drake had come and drake had francis drake had made friends with the maroons and this is one of the captains or the lieutenants of drake comes back with a new crew and they mess everything up <laughs> they cross to the pacific they capture they, they they cross to a ship the pacific they build boats with the maroons they capture a spanish vessel they go to the Pearl Islands off the coast. They raid the Pearl Islands, and then they're trying to get back to the Isthmus and then cross back to the Atlantic, and it all goes crazy. 
Um, and that starts a, a big period of warfare between the Spanish and the English, but then also the Maroons because the Maroons have been helping. So this, this, this enslaved man who's been captured by the Maroons is in a camp where these stragglers of the English come in. And by this point, the Maroons are pissed off with the English because they've only brought this, this crazy wrath of the Spanish <laughs> military down upon them. And so this, this enslaved person is narrating what happens when these English come into camp and, and what the reception is. And there's clearly, there's clearly sort of disagreement. Unfortunately, this is where the Spanish is a little bit difficult because it's, the document is the transcription of an interview with the enslaved man by the authorities in, in Nombre de Dios. And so it's all third person, he, they, they, they. So you have this fight happening between two they's. And so it's kind of hard to figure oh, out exactly what's going on, but it's pretty clear that the Maroons are pissed off at the English. And, and basically this, this person who's, a, who's also a captive of the Maroons sees the Maroons basically say, all right, this is the last stuff we're giving you. They give them some, some cured meats and, and some supplies, and they send them off on a canoe to get out of there. This enslaved person then runs away from the Maroons. Um, and, and, and again, the narration that he does after the fact uh, says he only traveled at night. He knew where he was along the coast. He knew that if he wanted to get back to Nombre de Dios, he had to keep the ocean on his right and kind of be going west. Um, and, and he gets back to Nombre de Dios. And then he sort of presents himself to the authorities and, and narrates this encounter of captivity and then what he observed with the English and the Maroons. Um, but that's, it, it's not super long. It's probably taken me longer to describe it than it would actually be the passage. But, um, but I, that's something that I couldn't have included if I, had, if I was stuck to 40,000 words. Um, and so I was able to include that. I was able to include a bit more at the end. So there's a kind of long, there's a kind of drawn out denouement to, to the conflict. So after a bunch of highs and lows, um, the Spanish are able to get the Maroons to trust them that they're offering a peace, um, which itself happens several times. And for very good reasons, the Maroons don't believe them. Um, but once the peace is agreed to, at least by the principal parties, then the Spanish end up sending um, squads throughout the Isthmus to try and find Maroons that have hidden in, in sort of little camps. Because basically what has happened is that, not surprisingly, as, as the Spanish begin to attack Maroons for their allies with the English, larger communities sort of fragment into these smaller family groups or even just, you know, groups of acquaintances. And so the Isthmus, instead of having four or five sort of big Maroon communities, has dozens or scores of these little camps of five, six, maybe 10 Maroons in them who have fled to more, even more remote regions to, to avoid the Spanish. And so to make sure that all of those groups have heard that the peace has been agreed to, they have to send out these patrols. But who is on the patrols? Mm -hmm. It's not Spaniards. Okay. It's it's Maroons who have, it's like the first Maroons who have, who have agreed to the peace and been given their freedom and who are now basically, again, kind of agents of the Spanish in finding these other groups. And, and so there's, again, these, these accounts of the Maroons when they come back and they're reporting, they're saying, so we went out and this is where we went. And we went to here, to here, to here, and, and talking about how hard it is to find some of these more remote encampments. Um, some of which, as far as I can tell, and, and and we can talk a little bit about trying to map this because I did try and make maps of this. Um, but I'm pretty sure that on some of these uh, encounters, 
the distance that the Maroons are from Panama City is basically modern day Colombia. That we, I know that some of the Maroons go as far as the Darien, where, where the very first Spanish city was, but that's abandoned well before this era. Uh, and there's at least one group that I think is, is certainly farther down the, Paci- the Pacific coastline into, into what is now Colombia. So we're talking about a, a geography that, that's hundreds yeah. of miles that these Maroons have, have gone into, and that now, when there is a peace, has to be sort of scoured to, to, to tell them all that you can, you can be free, and, and we now have new communities that that are le- sort of legitimate communities within the Spanish empire come, come with us to get your freedom papers and to, to join the community. Um, so those were again, places that were African voices because the, 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 mm-hmm. the reports are these African captains who went out on these expeditions. So again, I wanted to be able to include those documents uh, in the story. So you take the, You've got this mass of documents. You take and you select you select uh, ones that are particularly demonstrative of what you're trying to do. You translate them painstakingly, um, and and then you have them in this lovely like chronological order. Obviously, it's, it's impossible for an historian not to do that. Um, and then uh, you have uh, again broken up right to tell this narrative. What is what's the what is this narrative? So you're telling the story of. Um, uh, maroons, which are runaways, I think we have like right. We've, yep. we've established that but these runaways um, throughout the whole area that is basically now Panama, yeah, yep. and and then settle in territories, and then there's this ongoing warfare, and and I couldn't like this is a thing I'm still kind of unclear on like how much of this is like just kind of ongoing unrest? Is it like guerrilla warfare? Are we seeing like is there a period? I mean, there's a period of like, okay, we're at war here, but what does that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So the so w- one thing that your readers or your readers, your listeners um, <laughs> would would be interested is to sort of in this moment in time, there really is not a standing Spanish army. So so the first thing to think about is like what mm-hmm. what does the your, the colonial sort of military framework look like? Um, basically. The conquest was also not a Spanish military. Um, uh, my advisor, who who I think was technically your advisor at the very end of your time at yes, Penn State, yes, he was. Yes, he was. Uh, my advisor was, as well. The, the know, great and good Matthew Restall. Yeah. So he has a book called "The Seven Myths of the Spanish Conquest," which is a great read. Um, oh my god! But but it also um, points out that that conquests themselves are private enterprises. So one of the things about Spanish colonialism is it's it's very privately oriented and that even once it even once it's sort of moving towards something after conquest um, on the military front the 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 empire is dependent upon either private spaniards as a militia or or sort of ad hoc mobilization for almost any defense um, certainly into the the 17th century and of course the the sort of growing warfare among european powers leads to a military revolution but but really, throughout the colonial period, it's militias uh, that are the backbone of the defense system. And 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 what what happens in these stories is that it's not even clear that it's like the formal militia, but basically warfare, certainly Spanish warfare against maroons, is done through ad hoc um, levies. Uh, so the way what would happen is that the the local civil authority would commission 
a, a man always, obviously, as a captain, right? And this is, it's useful to think about a sort of pre-modern military, what that means. So in, in the early modern era, being a captain means that you have the authorization to raise a force. You have, a, you have the right to raise a flag and, and raise men to fight under that flag, L- quite literally. You get, you get a standard, which is your standard, and then you get men to fight with your standard. So w- any attempt to go after these Maroons is being done through this system of sort of raising a levy through the commissioning of a captain or multiple captains. Uh, during the peak of the conflict um, in the 1570s or this early period, uh, in 1550s, you might get someone who's more than a captain. He gets the title of captain general. Um, and sometimes they get called general as a title, but the captain general not only gets to raise a levy, but he can then commission his own captains. Um, so, so you do get something akin to an army with a structure. Um, but the important thing to note is, is that these, these these captaincies, these these units could be anywhere between like ten guys or one hundred and fifty guys, right? That, mm-hmm. that there's no standard size, and a lot of it depends on simply what the captain, who has the right to raise a force, can do, how much he can how much he can recruit, and often that's because he's he's either paying them out of his own pocket, or he's promising them some reward from what's happening. In the case of in the case of maroons, about the only reward would be uh, the value of a slave at resale, or 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 the right to a certain number of slaves, if, because you, essentially they're they're trying to re-enslave fugitives mm-hmm. who have run away, um, and so that would be something that they could offer to the men that would f- come to their banner is a value of 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 enslaved people that they captured. Mm-hmm. Uh, now your question about how prolonged is it? So, so the, the, the book traces conflicts beginning. I mean, we know of some in the 1520s, but the, the sort of main period is about the 1530s to the 1580s. And there's a couple peaks in there. There's this period in the 1550s, um, which is mostly uh, told through the lens of this uh, chronicle or that, that I mentioned. Um, and then there's this period that is, the bulk of the documentation uh, that's very rich from the 1570s and 80s, which is this English maroon alliance that then leads to prolonged conflict and eventually the the freedom for for maroons. And and what 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 it appears is that for most of that the broad stretch of period, what's happening is that maroons begin to raid and they're raiding uh, because they need supplies that they can't get. In, in the hinterlands, so things like uh, cotton cloth um, or steel tools or weapons, things that they, the, the, obviously there's no iron mines, um, even though we know some of these Africans are metalsmiths. In fact, there are some accounts where they're repurposing steel to make arrowheads or lance points, um, but there's obviously no iron ore that they can work with. So they have to get all of those materials from the Spanish. So they raid Spanish cities or uh, transportation mule trains to get this stuff. So what would happen is that you'd have a series of these raids and then the Spanish would commission uh, a captain to go out and try and have a sort of retaliatory strike. My sense is that there's far more of these expeditions that go out and really do nothing um, mm-hmm. than anything else because they the Spanish don't know the territory um, 
and and the, Mar the Maroons do. Um, and the Maroons aren't interested in fighting the Spanish in that context, so they're just going to flee. <coughs> it's pretty clear that the, the major settlements where the bulk of the Maroon population would be living, uh, women, uh, any children that had been born, is way far away, farther away mm -hmm. than, than most of these expeditions are ever going to go. Um, and, and so a lot of it is this kind of low-grade sort of raiding, retaliatory Spanish expedition, probably, you know, sort of guerrilla ambushes and fading into the, into the, into the, the bush, um, mm -hmm. except these moments of sort of punctuated conflict. So in the, in the 1550s, the, the raiding had gotten enough that, uh, they do commission this Pedro de Osura, who's the guy that, that gets killed by Lope de Aguirre to go out with 150 guys. But you can tell that no one's really interested in going because <laughs> most of his force is actually like, guys that have been put in prison <laughs> um, oh. that, that are allowed to leave prison uh, and, and fight with him on this expedition. So, you know, emptying your jails to form these, these, these campaigns is not a particularly, uh, no. uh, not suggest a strategy for success. Yeah. Um, and, and so that account, we can see a bit more of what, what a campaign looks like because it is narrated. The whole campaign is narrated. Um, and most of the fighting is, is just what I've described with the sort of average campaign where there's, there's these moments when either the Spanish stumble upon a, a, a sort of forward camp of the Maroons or the Maroons are ambushing a squad that has been sent to kind of range out and ahead of the main force. Um, and, uh, you know, the Spanish like to think that they're sending the Maroons fleeing uh, but that's probably because they're not recognizing that the strategy that the Maroons are using is to sort of harry them and then fade away. Mm -hmm. um, that, that one, the Spanish ultimately end up finding one of the main Maroon cities, um, which is where the leader of the time, whose name is Bayano, uh, is resident. Um, and interestingly enough, rather than sort of having this big grand engagement uh, against the Maroons, they actually sort of come with a, a flag of, of truce and negotiate uh, with Bayano. And so there's, there's also some interesting discussion of what this looks like. So this, the, the Maroon community is on the top of a hill and it's got a palisade uh, around it, um, which is where we get the word Palenque, which is um, like refers to the palisade itself. Mm -hmm. It becomes ubiquitous for Maroon communities around the Circum-Caribbean. Um, there's, in fact, a place in Colombia called Palenque because it had a mm -hmm. palisaded Maroon community. Um, and so there's this account of the Spanish and the Maroons. The Spanish make camp at the foot of this hill, and then the Maroons come down and they're negotiating. And the, the sort of common soldiers are, you know, playing together and hunting together and while the, you know, the leaders are negotiating. And, and so there's actually not much conflict there until mm -hmm. the Spanish decide to double-cross the Maroons and bring... Poison, poison the wine and drug the Maroons as a way of uh, killing their leadership and capturing King Bayano, which certainly sets a precedent which will <laughs> stay mm -hmm. for decades because what's interesting is that 20, even 20, 30 years later, Maroons do remember these, these earlier episodes. And so the idea that the Spanish would come under flag of truce to negotiate a peace um, and then double cross them uh, in that process uh, remains pretty strong. Mm -hmm. so that's once that happens, the, it doesn't sound like 
the Spanish actually capture that many Maroons. They certainly kill a number of them, but but it sounds like a lot of the residents of that community kind of filter back out and 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 scatter, and and the Spanish sort of go back with their prize of King Bayano, um, who has a little addendum, supposedly goes all the way to Peru where he meets the Viceroy of Peru and then is sent back to Spain to live out his days um, in Seville. Um, which is okay. yeah, an interesting episode that I don't know if we there's a document from Spain that corroborates that, but that's mm-hmm. that, that's what gets passed on certainly in Panama and in people that know the episode always sort of add that bit to it. Um, the other sort of big period of conflict is after the English come, um, and it's not Drake's initial. Drake comes. Drake actually probably comes uh, two times in the 1570s, although his first visit isn't really noted very well. A couple scholars think that he probably came about 1570, but his main sort of famous early visit is 1571, 72. Um, and there he's able to make an alliance with Maroons. He also makes an alliance with some French privateers. They're not really, they're not privateers. They really are pirates. Um, uh, <laughs> it's not as formal. I mean, the Spanish actually call them all corsairs is the word that they use. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Drake, with the help of the Maroons, is able to sort of cross. He goes almost to Panama City. He raids uh, this way station along the, the road between Panama City and Nombre de Dios, um, captures a bunch of silver, Tries to he tries to raid Nombre de Dios twice. The first time is a major failure. The second time is also pretty much a failure. Uh, and 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 he escapes. Uh, although his French uh, ally, uh, the captain, uh, dies. The interesting sort of tidbit about that alliance is that uh, this uh, the Frenchman, uh, the French corsair, has a sword that was given to him by King Henry II of France which after alliances and whatnot is ultimately given to one of these African Maroons. So sometime after 1570, there's an African Maroon in Panama that has a sword of the King of France. Um, All right. The the Spanish don't do much on that. They, 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 once, once they know that Drake has left, they actually don't really set off many campaigns. um, And, and the, and the Maroons don't do a huge amount of raiding. What happens is then about two years later, uh, a guy by the name of John Oxenham uh, comes back. And Oxenham had been with Drake and wanted to basically do it again. And as I said, he has the, he, he, he does more than Drake. He crosses the Isthmus, goes into the Pacific, raids in the Pacific. Um, and it's in the wake of that that the Spanish sort of really retaliate because they don't want to see this again. Um, mm-hmm. And they're able to catch up with the English and the Maroons um, before they really enter the Isthmus. So that basically what happens is that the English and the Maroons are coming back into a bay south and east of Panama City called the, the Gulf of San Miguel. And the Spanish are mobilized quickly and get them as they're unloading all of the stuff that they've stolen. Um, and from the Spanish accounts, uh, it basically sounds like, you know, everyone everyone in that English maroon expedition is sort of lollygagging. They're, they're sort of excited that they were successful and they're kind of, you know, they're like cooking meat on the side of the river where they're unloading their stuff and, uh, and the Spanish sort of pounce upon them. And, and that then sort of sparks uh, a conflict. So the, the Spanish then really want to, they want to get the English and then kill the maroons for what goes on. 
And one reason why it ends up being more a more active period of fighting is that that word of the whole English Maroon Alliance not only goes to Panama City, but it ends up going to Lima because of the ships being raided in the Pacific, word very quickly gets down to Lima. And so another so they organize a second expedition in Lima that comes up. Um, the guy that that first encounters the the Maroons from Panama, who, who's leaving from Panama City, captures, I think it's about 14 or 15 of the English um, and, and a certain, you know, similar number of Maroons and, and is able to recover some of the, what had been stolen. Um, and so he's like, done and done. I'm going to go back to Panama and like claim my reward and be done. Whereas this guy that's been sent from Lima, where the Viceroy is, he's a little bit upset because he doesn't want he do, he doesn't want the fighting to be done because then he would have been given this commission and all of these troops for nothing and of course the you know the goal of any sort of early modern soldier is to be successful enough to get some other reward right um, and so this guy that's coming up from Panama City really doesn't want to go back and and it ends up being kind of an argument because the authorities in Panama City don't want to recognize his commission from the viceroy. And this gets down to the nitty gritty of jurisdiction and who has the authorization to grant captaincies and captaincy generals. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it's decided that there are enough English still at large because there's probably 40 or 50 total and they've only captured, you know, maybe a little over a dozen. So they decide to send him out. But the, the, out, the officials in Panama sort of delay him for like months, um, even while they're sending their own expeditions, particularly along the Atlantic, to try and find out where the English boats are. Because the, what they've been doing is that they basically go to an empty bay on the coast. They, they don't scuttle them, but they pull them all as far up onto the coast as they can. And then they kind of cover them with bushes, like your classic sort of Pirates of the Caribbean kind of toy. <laughs> and so the Spanish want to find these ships so they cut off the escape. And so the officials in Panama are doing all of this while giving the runaround to this guy from... Lima, but once he finally is able to sort of wave his commission enough, they're like, fine, go, you can go this way. And, and the fact that he really wants to be successful because he's answering to a different set of officials, I think explains why in the 1570s, you have this real escalation of what's going on. It then gets furthered because the guy that was first sent from Panama and was the first one to sort of capture and bring back some of these Africans and Maroon or English and Maroons decides to go back to Spain in part to sort of get a reward from the king for having done this, but mm -hmm. also then to get a, another commission from the <laughs> king to go back. So part of it is that you have all of these Spaniards who sort of recognize the moment as being ripe for advancing their own interests through military service. And so basically within six months of the guy from Peru kind of mopping up his operations and he's He's actually pretty successful. He wages a scorched earth campaign. He burns every maroon city that he can find. And is one of the reasons why the maroon population ends up scattering into these little hamlets in the isthmus. So he goes his way to report back to his viceroy. And then the guy comes back from Spain with an army and lands in Nombre de Dios. And, and that's when things get really interesting because it's at that point when the, the, there had been a scorched earth campaign for about about eight months, nine months, that the Maroons approach him. So he's landed in Nombre de Dios and, 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 and a set of Maroons approach him seeking a peace. 
And the reason why they do that is that there had been an attempt by the Spanish to offer a peace after Drake's first expedition, but it didn't bear any fruit because the Maroons didn't trust the Spanish. And so what's clearly mm -hmm. happened is that there's been this sort of prolonged, mm -hmm. almost a year of fighting, a scorched earth campaign against settlements and, and, mm -hmm. and fields, right? Their, their agricultural livelihood. And so the Maroons do sort of begin to feel out the authenticity of this peace arrangement. Um, and it appears that they might have had some interactions with this guy before. His name is um, or Pedro Ortega de Valencia. And he had been in Panama for a while. He'd actually been one of the royal uh, treasurer's officials in Nombre de Dios, which means that he might have had encounters with some Maroons before as they were raiding or not. And, and so he was a, he's a bit more of a known commodity to them than this guy that had come up from Peru. And that begins a period of negotiation. Um, and, and for a time, there is this lull in fighting. It, it breaks down probably for reasons that have to, uh, to do with both kind of continued distrust with the Spanish, mm -hmm. disagreements around, among the Maroons. The Spanish never really know what the, the organization of Maroons are. In the 1550s, the Maroons talk about having a king, this King Bayano. So it seems like this very kind of mm -hmm. almost, um, you know, hierarchical, right. maybe yeah. tribal would, it's not a great word, but that sort of leadership. Mm -hmm. um, for the 1570s and 80s, I think that the, the strongest argument can be made is it's actually more of a confederacy, that you have a number mm -hmm. of yeah. prominent leaders who sort of have their own communities and followers, and, and there might be a first among equals of those leaders, mm -hmm. but there's certainly not a strong central leadership. Uh, and so there's, there's clearly disagreement about the peace. The other thing that messes up the peace is that Drake comes back, but Drake doesn't come back on the Atlantic side. This is when Drake does his circumnavigation of mm -hmm. the globe. And so he's actually coming back on the Pacific side. He doesn't actually come to Panama, but everyone knows he's coming because he's raiding down in Ecuador and in Peru. And, and so the Spanish are super sneaky about it when they get messages from the boats that are coming up from Lima that Drake is back, they send a secret message to <laughs> Ortega Valencia, who's in the middle of negotiations with Maroons, a secret message <laughs> that Drake might be coming back, so be careful. And sure enough, before that envelope is even opened, the Maroons know that Drake is coming back. Right, of course. <laughs> and, and, and so it's unclear whether or not the Maroons are simply of a... Of a, a of a disagreement about whether or not to trust the Spanish or whether there's some sense that, well, if Drake comes back, we have this alliance again, and then maybe that changes the dynamic. Either way, it breaks down. Um, and Ortega Valencia then tries to go back a little bit to the Scorched Earth campaign. Uh, but, but again, because of the way that the Maroons have scattered and dispersed into these really small, uh, mm. almost sort of family unit-sized uh, groups, it's not very effective. And so, the, the, so these Spanish soldiers in, in little squads of like 10 or 15 are having to tromp all the way through oh God, yeah. the jungle. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work, but it, it lasts long enough um, that the Maroons eventually sort of decide to, to sort of test the waters again. And by that point, everyone's fed up with having to manage the situation that, that you see a peace happening. Right on. Okay. That's so fascinating. My God, Rob, what a great story. 
mean, what a great, like, you must have been so excited when you stumbled upon these documents. I have, I, I, what I want to see, this is one of those stories that, like, given the, the sort of golden age that we're in of, um, like, series, like, either limited series or, or, or just mm-hmm. streaming series, like, this is a story that would be amazing. What, what I would love to see would be sort of a black screenwriter or, or author sort of take this story and, 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 and give us something for the screen, you know, whether it's like a a 10 episode series on, on Netflix or, you know, I think it does need to be something more than like a three hour movie, but, um, but there's so much because there's enough, there's enough individuals that are leaders, sort of African leaders of these communities whose names that we know and who appear enough that you can, you could creatively create a personality for them. Mm But it really, you know, the the thing is, you know, I can tell this story from the documents and through the documents, but to really kind of make it come to life in that way, you really want, you know, a a black author or writer to kind of flesh it out in a way Mm -hmm. that um, gives it that, that authenticity in, in the sort of multimedia uh, genre um, yeah, to, to give it I like life. It. I think it would be an amazing story that you could, there's so much there that you could do with it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Although I do think that like this last bit where you've got like maroon families and like, you know, uh, this bit of the, 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 the kind of hapless bands of Spaniards just tripping over themselves in the jungle. I want Taiko Waititi to direct that episode. Oh, I think, yeah, I, I, I think he would do awesome. I mean, it's sort of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think that yeah, he would he would be like an ideal uh, yeah. executive producer for it because yeah, he has this way of 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 mixing in humor with realism. I mean, like right now I'm watching mm-hmm. Reservation Dogs and and that's just such an amazing story in the way that it's able to to sort of show things which are incredibly sad but still have lots of lighthearted mm-hmm. moments and then sort of capture these vignettes i mean it's just a, it's just an amazing yeah so yeah someone he would That's, he would be a great person to to sort of be part of that project yeah absolutely god i have taken up so much of your time so far over the the, the uh, 45 promised minutes so i'm just going to wrap this up i've just got the one more question which is what's next what are you working on now so the, the next project is is really the scholarly monograph that compares mm-hmm. panama to hispaniola to mexico um, and I think that, you know, the, the thing that's, that your listeners would find interesting is that you see movements like this in all three places, but they're slightly different. And the Spanish mm-hmm. responses are also different. So the idea of peace is sort of floated everywhere. Um, it happens in Panama. It happens in Mexico, but it never happens on Hispaniola. Um, and I wrote an article a few years ago about Hispaniola. And the interesting thing there, one of the sort of bits of Atlantic history that people also don't know of. So people probably know that the Spanish, something happens on the island and eventually the French get to the Western part of the island, right? That's how, that's why we get Haiti and Saint-Domingue. Part of that story is Maroons. And, and all of the dynamics that I've been talking about for Panama are really present on Hispaniola. It's also an island that has lots of spaces that have been emptied of indigenous inhabitants that become refuges for Maroons. There's conflict in the 1540s and the 1560s and the 1570s. What happens on Hispaniola is that you have uh, contraband traders. So you have Spanish cities that are trading with the Dutch and with the the English and with the French. But you also have Maroons. 
And so there's a plan that's put together by one of the residents of the island in the early 1600s, which is what ends up being done, which is that we shouldn't let these Spanish cities that are on the coast continue to trade with these foreigners. And we, and we need to uh, deal with the Maroons. So the best way of dealing with both those problems is by removing all of those Spanish cities from the west and the north of the island and moving them closer to Santo Domingo. Um, and for a while it's resisted, but a couple things happen. The king of Spain dies and there's a new king and a lot of changeover in the ministries. And someone says, oh, let's do that. Let's do that one. And so they put this plan into action where they, they basically burn down these cities, cities where there's a Spanish city, like where Porta Prince is today, burned down. There's Spanish cities that kind of all along the northern part of the island burn and relocated into this interior. And the argument in the document is a lot about contraband trade, but it's also mm-hmm. as a way of dealing with Maroons. Now, it doesn't make any sense. It's not a good argument. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, okay. It's one that's chosen, but it's not a good argument because, of course, it just means that that area becomes even better for Maroons. Um, so so, so that's, that's the sort of interesting Maroon story and why the comparison mm-hmm. is kind of useful. It's like, what is it that leads Spanish authorities in Mexico and Panama to come to a peace? Whereas mm-hmm. Spanish authorities in Hispaniola actually do this crazy thing and, in fact, destroy Spanish settlements rather than trying to come to a peace with the Maroons or, or do, do something else to, to sort of solve their problems. Um, and, and, and even the sort of scope of, of Maroonage as a, as a form of resistance is different. Mm-hmm. Um, in Mexico, it's there. Um, they, there's a community that, that they negotiate with and gets its freedom in the early 1600s. But it's not as widespread as in Panama or Hispaniola. And, and I think that that has a lot to do with just the other outlets for mm-hmm. enslaved people's um, resistance. Um, so urban spaces tend to have other ways of sort of resisting enslavement. Um, and a lot, of, a lot more slaves in Mexico are in urban areas. The rural areas of Mexico still have indigenous communities, which can also be a site of refuge, right? And that mm-hmm. it is it is marinage in a sense, but it's not the kind of marinage that produces these maroon communities. So I want to write a book that sort of tries to map out why things are different and why things are similar and kind of use these three places as a way of exploring both what it, what Spanish how the Spanish approach it, but also how Africans are negotiating these experiences in these similar but still different places. All right, yeah, that'll that'll that's going to be great. That's that's quite a project. It's going to take a while, and I'm very excited about it. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you about that one too. Thanks so much for talking to me today. It's been so great. What a great way to hang out with an old friend too. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. All right, uh, listeners, do check it out. Um, African Maroons in 16th Century Panama. Um, you can get it anywhere you like, and I it links a link to bookshop in the blog post. All right, bye. All right, Rob. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>